All right, turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, verses 43 to 72, a rather large section of Mark's gospel that we'll be covering together today, where we get to behold the Lord Jesus Christ in his glory once again. We have such an amazing Lord. We have such an amazing Savior in his courage, in his strength, in his prayerfulness, in his love, in his humility, in his patience, in his submission to the governing authorities, and yet his courage to be able to speak the truth in every situation. We have a Lord who is a perfect example for us, and that's why we're here. We're here to live life, to learn how to live life the way that the Lord Jesus Christ lived his life. And so we look into the text of the gospel in order to see Jesus Christ so that we might pattern ourselves after his perfect example. Last week, we looked into the gospel of Mark, particularly in the aspect of Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we learned that the truest definition of a Christian is one who follows the Lord Jesus Christ. And that to the degree that you pray like the Lord Jesus Christ is probably the same degree that you are a Christian. Well, we have another example of the Lord Jesus Christ set out before us in the text today, that if you learn how to suffer the way that the Lord Jesus Christ suffered, then you will be worthy of that title of Christian someone who follows the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to see him in his suffering and the example that he sets for us. That's why our scripture reading was in 1 Peter chapter 4. And that will be our application at the end of the text today. But before we read it, before we dive in, let's have a word of prayer as we prepare our hearts to receive God's instruction. Father, we thank you once again for gathering us together in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to a place, to a community, to a people that have the Spirit of Christ dwelling within them, where we can see Christ in one another, in the good works that are done not only here, but also throughout the week, not only to one another, but also the good works that the Holy Spirit has given to us to let our light shine in our communities. God, as we now spend this next 45 minutes in the text of Scripture looking at the Lord Jesus Christ and how he suffered, may we learn how to follow in his footsteps and to suffer for righteousness' sake in the will of God with the same strength, with the same courage, with the same humility that the Lord Jesus Christ displays. Amen. All right, so we're going to be looking at our outline for this morning. You see the title is The Lord Jesus Christ Betrayed, Oppressed, and Denied. Betrayed by Judas oppressed by the Sanhedrin, the governing authorities, and denied by his friends. You can't get much more suffering than that. Suffering from your enemies, suffering from your friends, that's the suffering servant, the Lord Jesus Christ in the text before us today. And so that's going to be the basic outline. Betrayed, oppressed, and denied. We'll take it in those sectional verses that you have there on the screen Go ahead and follow in your Bible as I read for us verses 43 to 52. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, 
he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Here in these verses, we see, first of all, Jesus and Judas. We see the man who was faithful to his friend and the friend who was unfaithful to his master. It is specifically pointed out that when Judas came, that he was one of the twelve. You see that in verse 43. Judas came one of the twelve, which has been emphatic throughout this chapter. You go back to verse 10 in chapter 14, and you see there that Judas, who was one of the twelve, Mark points out, one of the twelve went to the chief priests in order to betray him. And you come down to verse 17 in the same chapter at the Passover meal, and Jesus there in verse 18 then says, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And then in verse 20, it is one of the twelve. And again, here in our text, Judas is identified as one of the twelve. Now we don't need Mark to tell us that he's one of the twelve at this point. We've got that established. But the fact that Mark records it again, he's highlighting the betrayal. He's highlighting that this is one of Jesus' closest followers, one that he spent the most time with, one of his closest friends, who is the one that God ordained to betray the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it highlights the evil of the betrayal. Now, also highlighting the evil of this betrayal is the manner in which Judas arranges for the arrest. Notice what the text says, that the betrayer, a good description of Judas, had given them a sign saying, okay, so he's got it planned out. Here we're going to be in the dark in a garden on the mountainside. There's going to be a lot of men there. You've got to make sure that Jesus doesn't slip away, but that you actually get there and get the right man. And so Judas, who knows the 12 very well, will be the guide to make sure that they don't accidentally arrest John or Andrew, but that they lay hold of Jesus and that he does not escape. And so Judas is making sure that this arrest goes according to plan by prearranging the sign of the kiss. And to betray your friend with this particular sign, again, shows the evil of the betrayal. Just how dark. To use this symbol of love, the greeting of kiss in their culture, and to use it as the emblem of hatred and rejection and betrayal. This is the last we hear of Judas in the Gospel of Mark. He plays his part of being the betrayer, but then he's going to fade off of the scene. And the focus will then be on Jesus and his disciples. Notice that after the focus on the betrayer, then we have the focus on the disciples and their flight. Verse 47, But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And then you come down to verses 50 to 52. And they all left him and fled. And even this unnamed young man who was following him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. It was late at night. He decided to go with Jesus. 
to the garden. He'd already disrobed, so he's just got like his bed cloth or some other linen cloth that he wraps around himself. And he thinks, well, I'll just go pray in the garden or spend some time with Christ and then head back to bed. And when they seize him, he leaves the linen cloth and runs away naked. Now, Mark is the only one who includes verses 51 and 52 about this young man. And so that has led some people to speculate that this young man could be Mark himself. And that here maybe Mark is giving a personal reminiscence of his own experience on that night. Because he would have been a young man. And it's quite possible that he lived in Jerusalem. And that some people think that maybe even the Last Supper was held at John Mark's house. We don't know any of that for certain, but it makes for an interesting hypothesis. But the point of the story isn't to identify John Mark or get into speculation. The point is to show the desperation with which all of the disciples fled. That even if it meant leaving behind the linen cloth and running through the night naked, they were going to do whatever it took to spare their lives and that they're all cowardly while Jesus Christ himself is courageous and bold. You see the courage and the boldness of the Lord Jesus Christ then in contrast to Judas's betrayal and the disciples' cowardice in verses 48 and 49. Jesus said to those who had come out to arrest him, this crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, as it says in verse 43, and Jesus said to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. There's a key word there that Jesus speaks of, and that's the word seize. And that's what this passage is all about. It's highlighted throughout the text in verses 44, 46, 49, and 51. They were there to seize the Lord Jesus Christ. But he did not run, and he did not fight. And one of his disciples drew a sword and struck the high priest's servant, on the ear, missing his mark, probably meaning to cut off his head, but instead just getting the ear. But Jesus tells him to put away his sword, and Jesus makes it clear that he's not going to put up a resistance. And when it's clear that Jesus is giving himself up, that's when all the disciples flee, because they know that there's no hope of rescuing their master from this situation, and they know that it is, as he said, that he is going to be put to death. Now, remember that all of the disciples had said that they were going to die with him. You go back just a few verses to verse 31. And here we are at the Last Supper, and Jesus is telling Peter the prophecy of Peter's denial. In verse 31, Peter responded emphatically and denied that he would deny. And he said, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same thing. Now, it's easy to be courageous in hypothetical situations it's hard to be courageous in the moment and so it makes me ask myself what would i have done if i was there on that night with jesus would i have been like peter and the other disciples and said i love you even if i have to die with you i will not deny you i will not forsake you it's you and me to the end i'm with you it's easy to say hard to do how do you know what your response would be. What if God does call you to suffer as a Christian, to suffer for Christ's sake? Will you be strong to stand? Or will you be a coward? Will you run? Will you deny the Lord Jesus Christ if it comes to it, your life or confessing before those who are there to arrest you and put you to death, 
that you are a Christian, that you love the Lord Jesus Christ. All of us here this morning would say, I will stand with Christ. I will not deny him. But there may come a time where you are tested on that claim. How do you prepare yourself for that day? How do you prepare yourself for the test? You do what Jesus Christ told us to do. You deny yourself every day. You take up your cross and follow the Lord Jesus Christ daily. If you are not dying daily, don't think that you will die with Christ when the ultimate sacrifice is called for. If you won't sacrifice your time, if you won't sacrifice your comfort, if you won't sacrifice your preferences, if you won't sacrifice daily for the Lord Jesus Christ, then don't think that you're going to make the ultimate sacrifice for him when the time comes. You're training yourself each day as to what's important to you, your life or Christ. And so it's not that hard to know, actually, whether or not you will stand. And you could probably take a poll of people in the church and say, do you think if I was called upon to die for Christ that I would do so? And the people here would probably be able to tell you, no, I don't see it. Or yes, I do see it. I think you would. The people who know you best, they know. Are you living your life daily for yourself or are you living life daily for the Lord Jesus Christ? You can know it too if you're honest with yourself. So let's do what Jesus Christ said. Let's die daily so that when we are called upon to give the ultimate sacrifice for Christ, we are trained and ready to do so. This is what it means to be a Christian. All right, so Jesus' words, he points out in verses 48 and 49 the hypocrisy of the authorities, that they're coming out and treating him as if he is a robber, as if he is some kind of violent criminal when he is the furthest thing from it. Recently there was an arrest that was done by the FBI against a pastor and they showed up at his house with all kinds of heavy weaponry and an assault squad and body armor and the kids were crying. This is not a gangster that you're going to arrest. He's not a leader of a militia. He's a pastor. And so the same thing that Satan did back then, he's doing today as well. And so if an armed guard shows up at your house to arrest you like you are some kind of insurrectionist, well, don't be surprised. They did it to the Lord Jesus Christ, and, and they'll do it again. And you can hopefully have the courage and the boldness to say the same thing. What's all this fuss? Why are you coming out here with all of your machine guns to arrest me? I'm a peaceful man. I look at my record. Have I ever committed any violent crimes? What are you so worried about? Why are you acting this way? So the Lord Jesus Christ says, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple, teaching you, and you did not seize me. But, notice this last part, let the scriptures be fulfilled. That's a theme you're going to see throughout the whole trial, the arrest, the suffering, the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ is let the scriptures be fulfilled both in the first part of our outline, the second and the third part, Scripture is being fulfilled. Prophecy is being fulfilled. Everything is happening according to the predetermined plan of God and that the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing the will of God, having studied Scripture, being fully cognizant of prophecy, is not caught off guard, he's not caught unprepared, but that he is walking in confidence in the will of God, willing to suffer because God told him everything ahead of time. 
And we can have that same courage. We can have that same confidence. When the world starts to fall apart, we don't fall apart because God told us everything ahead of time. Go back to the Olivet Discourse. Jesus told us exactly what was going to happen. And he said, don't be disturbed. Don't be troubled when they arrest you and drag you before the authorities. When you start to see the signs of the end coming, it has to be this way. When nation rises up against nation and you hear of wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes in various places, don't be disturbed. That the fruit of the Spirit is peace. The fruit of the Spirit is joy. And if you're looking at the world falling apart and the destruction of Western civilization and you're losing your peace and your joy, you need to spend more time reading Scripture and reading prophecy and trusting in the Word of God and being willing to suffer for the Lord Jesus Christ in a dark time, a dark hour. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand in the evil day like the Lord Jesus Christ, saying it's all going to be fulfilled the way that God planned it. And I'm going to do the part that God has for me to play in that drama of redemption. So, the words of Jesus Christ pointing out that mankind's injustice, their hypocrisy, their deception, their inconsistency, everything very shady and suspect about how they're going about this night arrest of the Lord Jesus Christ, that their injustice is only fulfilling God's prophetic plan we can have the same confidence. So let's take a look then at verses 53 to 65 about the oppression of the Lord Jesus Christ in his first trial before the Jewish council. You follow along in your Bibles, I'll read out loud for us verses 53 to 65. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together, and Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst, and he asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him, and to cover his face, and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. The key word in this part of our outline is witness. You have the false witnesses and then you have the true witness of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are told that Christ confessed the good confession. And that's what we see there in verse 61 and verse 62. The thematic climax of the whole book where Jesus Christ stands in the midst of his enemies and declares the truth about who he is 
and what that means for all mankind. This is an awesome passage where you see contrasted the oppression of man with the glory of Jesus Christ. I love to compare Jesus and Judas to see how glorious Jesus is in his faithfulness in comparison to the unfaithfulness of people. I love to compare Jesus and the high priest Caiaphas to be able to see the glory of God's Christ versus the dishonor and shame of human rulers. And I love to compare Jesus and Peter in verses 66 and 72 to see the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ in comparison to the weakness of us, his followers. All throughout this passage, what you get is the picture of the Christ who is in control, who is self-controlled, who is humble and just, who is strong. This is our leader. This is the one that we've pledged our lives to. Let's take a look at the sketchy trial that we have here. Notice that this trial takes place at night. That was not something that was supposed to be done in Jewish law. Notice that there's no defense attorney appointed for the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that when false witnesses rise up against him and their testimony does not agree, that there is no penalty for bearing false witness, which is according to the law, that whenever you bear false witness against someone, then there is a penalty for that in Jewish law. We would be wise to institute such a practice in our nation to cut down on some of the frivolous lawsuits and the lies that take place in courts as people get away with false accusations and have no consequences in their life. And that's part of the injustice of this oppressive trial. Notice also that they decide his fate the very same day that they hold the trial. Now, we don't know how much of the Mishnah dates back to practices that were current in the time of Jesus. The Mishnah is a Jewish book that was written about 200 years later, but it records a lot of the traditions that were handed down from this time period. And one of the things that the Mishnah records about capital crimes is that the judges had to take two days to consider the case before they made their verdict. Because it's such a a matter of grave importance to decide the fate of a man's life or death, you don't decide on the spot whether or not your judgment is guilty or innocent, but there's a time period that the Mishnah recorded was necessary before you make your decision. But they don't take that time to consider it either because their mind is already made up. This is not a trial. It's a show trial. The verdict has already been decided ahead of time and they're just seeking after some kind of justification for the verdict that they have already predetermined. Mark again, repeatedly highlights the falsehood of the witnesses who rise up against him. Let's take a look at the closest the witnesses get to establishing a viable charge against Jesus there in verse 57. It says there, Some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another, not made with hands. Now the question is, did Jesus actually say this? It's an interesting question because this accusation is one that not only shows up here, but it shows up in other places, although there's no place in the Bible where we actually have Jesus saying this, and Mark records it as a false accusation. But it does appear from the gospel record as a whole that Jesus did say something like this, but that it was misunderstood 
and misinterpreted by his enemies to be able to use it against him. For example, come with me to Mark chapter 15, verse 29. Mark 15, 29, where we come to the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. A passage we'll be considering soon when we get to Good Friday. It says there, Those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Now, are these the same people who were there as witnesses against him at his trial? Are they now throwing this accusation out at him again? Or is this someone else? Maybe it's gone around among the people that Jesus said this. Maybe he said something like it. People have been reporting it. People have been misreporting it. People have made something out of what Jesus said different from what he actually said. Also come with me to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 6 and verse 14. We come to Acts where we have the inspired account of the murder, the judicial murder of Stephen, one of the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there in Acts chapter 6 verse 14, we see that false witnesses once again are being set up now not against Christ but against a Christian. And they say in verse 13, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So, still in the time of Stephen's trial, they're using this same accusation, this same charge against Christ's followers that they tried to use against Christ at his trial. And so we have to wonder, well, where did this come from? Where did people get this idea that Jesus was going to destroy the temple and rebuild it with one that was not made by hands? Well, remember, if you come back to Mark, in chapter 13, Jesus had predicted the destruction of the temple. Back in Mark 13, the opening verses there, Jesus comes out of the temple. One of his disciples point out the wonderful stones, the beautiful buildings of the temple complex. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So maybe some of these guys heard Jesus say that. I mean, he's in the temple, he's leaving the temple, he mentions it to his disciple that the temple's going to be destroyed. Or maybe other people heard it and they reported it. But it got reported as, Jesus is going to destroy the temple. But is that what he said? No, that's not what he said. He said the temple was going to be destroyed. He didn't say, I'm going to destroy it. Who ends up destroying the temple? Was it Jesus and the Christians? No. It was the Romans who destroyed the temple. Jesus was a true prophet. He predicted the destruction of the temple. But people misunderstood, either deliberately or unintentionally, the words that Jesus spoke, and then they tried to use those words against him. Now this is an example for you. You are going to say things, as a Christian, that people are going to misunderstand, that people are going to misinterpret. Now, you want to do the best job that you can to try to communicate clearly. But understand this. No matter how good of a communicator you are, you can't prevent people from misunderstanding you and twisting your words and using it against you. And so if it happens, be like Jesus. Suffer. 
and do it in the will of God. Now, when the high priest in Mark chapter 14, back there, when he finds that he can't get any testimony that is going to be able to be put down in the books and be able to be a record that agrees, that is going to establish a capital charge against Jesus, he's getting a little nervous probably. He's getting a little bit desperate. He's like, well, we've got to have a charge to bring against Jesus. We've got to be able to make it at least look like we've got a good reason for bringing him to Pilate for execution. And so, without any good witnesses, he just turns to a different tactic. And he stands in the midst and he speaks directly to Jesus of Nazareth. And he says there in verse 60, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? So he's trying to get Jesus to incriminate himself. We can't get anyone else to incriminate you, so I'm hoping that I can goad you into saying something that we can use against you. That's why in our justice system, you have the right to remain silent. You have the right to not incriminate yourself because anything you say can and will be used against you in the court of law. You can count on it. So if you're innocent, sometimes it's a good idea just to say nothing. Because anything you say can and will be used against you. And know this, the investigator who pretends to be your friend is not always your friend. And just because you're innocent doesn't mean he's not going to use your words against you. Okay, so don't be foolish, don't be naive. You have the right to remain silent, and Jesus avails himself of that right. The high priest is hoping that he'll be foolish enough to say something that he can use against him, but Jesus does not. He keeps silent, and this frustrates the high priest even more. I can't get my witnesses to say anything. I can't get the accused to say anything. I need something. And so he asks once again. He says, the high priest again asked, Are you the Christ? the Son of the Blessed. And here is where Jesus gives a response. Now, why didn't Jesus give an answer earlier? Why was he silent this whole time? Well, it's to fulfill prophecy. That's one reason why Jesus was silent. Because in Isaiah 53, verse 7, the most important chapter in the Old Testament about the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ, about this time period, Jesus knew, Jesus read, that the Christ was afflicted and oppressed. Yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. And so Jesus deliberately fulfilled prophecy by being silent as he was being oppressed and afflicted. He opened not his mouth, is what Isaiah 53 prophesied. So once again, an emphasis, I think, on fulfilled prophecy here, although it doesn't say it explicitly in the text, it does say it explicitly in other places in regards to Jesus' silence here. Secondly, he doesn't say anything because they haven't accused him of anything that is worthy of a response. I don't have to answer your charges because your charges have no basis, no grounds, no evidence, no witnesses. I don't have to defend myself because you haven't made any kind of prosecution. So that's the second reason, I think. And then thirdly, what I already mentioned, Jesus knows they're only going to use his words against him. And Luke actually records that Jesus was silent because he knew they wouldn't listen and they were just going to use his words against him. That's the three reasons, I think, why he's silent. But then, 
why does he speak up to give the high priest what he wants when the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Because Jesus Christ came for this purpose. In fact, the providence of God allowed for no witnesses to be able to agree to establish any capital offenses against the Lord Jesus Christ. God ordained that Jesus Christ would be silent when the high priest asked him to make an answer to the charges to incriminate himself because God wanted the high priest to ask Jesus this question. It had to come to this. This was the whole point, that the high priest and Jesus have this conversation at that time and at that place, and that Jesus Christ would say to the high priest and all of the rulers of Israel, I am the Christ. I am the Son of the Blessed. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And that's also the truth for you, that if someday you are arrested for being a Christian, and they're trying to come up with all these fake charges against you, to try to establish your guilt and that you're some kind of dangerous criminal. The point of all of that is so that you can stand before the judge. You can stand before the reporters. You can stand before everyone who is listening in and you can confess that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, and that he's coming back in power and glory. That's why God will allow you to be arrested and to suffer so that you can make the good confession. You see, Mark is writing this gospel for the church at Rome. And the church at Rome is suffering persecution. They're starting to be arrested. They're starting to be put to death. And now they have set before them the way, the truth, and the life. This is how you do it. This is how you stand when they haul you before the magistrates. This is the confession that you make. This is how you carry yourself, like the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what the whole book of 1 Peter is about. Peter wrote 1 Peter to Christians who were suffering, who were suffering persecution, who were being arrested, who were being put in jail, who might even be put to death. He said, Christ has been given as your example. This is how you testify in court. You don't have to make a defense for yourself. You have to tell people, Jesus is the Son of God. That's what you're there for. And that's a privilege. That's an honor to be one that God has chosen to stand in the courtroom and testify. Jesus got to do it with the high priest and the Sanhedrin. It was God's will. It was necessary that the Christ stand in the court and tell them the truth. What they did with that truth is up to them. But we testify of the Lord Jesus Christ. False witnesses against us, but we are witnesses for the Lord Christ. And whatever happens to us, doesn't matter. Now, when the high priest gets this answer, he's like, oh goody, that was just what I was hoping you would say. And so he does what is customary, what is expected of a high priest when you hear blasphemy. And so he tears his cloak as a sign to everyone that what Jesus has said is blasphemy, that I, the high priest, recognize this as a blasphemous statement. And so when the high priest hears blasphemy, that's what he's supposed to do, and that's what he does. And this is the sign to everybody that now we got him. We got him on a charge of blasphemy. We don't need any witnesses. He's incriminated himself. What's your decision? They all condemned him to be deserving 
of death. This is the end of the messianic secret. This is the first public pronouncement of Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God, to the leaders of Israel, to the Sanhedrin. He had hinted at it, he'd acted like it, but he never said it openly until this moment. This was the moment that God had ordained and destined for these men to hear the truth from Jesus' own lips about who he was. Now the fact that they have no interest in examining the truthfulness of Jesus' claim, but they only are interested in using this statement in order to kill him, seals their fate. Who is really on trial here? The Lord Jesus Christ, he has an eternal perspective. He trusts in God. He knows that there is life after death. He knows that there is a resurrection of both the righteous and the unrighteous. He knows that every human being will stand before the maker of mankind and will give an account for his life. And some will go to the resurrection of the righteous and some will go to the resurrection of the unjust for eternal destruction. He knows. And so he's not really on trial here. It's the Sanhedrin that is on trial. And Jesus makes that clear when he says, I am, he tells them, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. You think you're in a position of power? You think you're in a position of authority? It's nothing compared to the position of power and authority that I am about to take. And whatever you do to me, you're not hurting me. You're sealing your own fate. You will see the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. This is a reference back to what Jesus said in Mark chapter 13, verse 26. You go back a page or two to the Olivet Discourse. And how does the Olivet Discourse end? Mark 13, verse 26. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. And this Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, it doesn't originate here in Mark 13, but it actually goes back to the book of Daniel. Remember when we were studying the Olivet Discourse that this phrase is from Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, which is one of the most important messianic texts in the Gospel of Mark. And Jesus here combines Daniel 7:13 with Psalm 110, verse 1, which is the other most important verse about prophecy, about the Christ, in the Gospel of Mark. You got Daniel 7, you got Psalm 110, and you've got Isaiah 53, and these texts merge together to give a full understanding of who Jesus Christ is and what his future destiny and his glory will be. Going to the right hand of God is where he is now. Coming in the clouds of heaven is what we are waiting for, the blessed hope. Jesus speaks about his return with all the power of heaven. They think it's blasphemy. Well, somebody is blaspheming. It's either Jesus or it's the Sanhedrin. Either Jesus is the Son of God or he's not. And all of us have to make that choice. You're on trial here today as well. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? Well, if so, then you are saved. And you are not blaspheming, but you're worshiping the true God. But if you say no, and you believe in some other 
God, then you are blaspheming. If you reject Christ as the Son of God, then you do not have God the Father. And you do not have eternal life. This is the dividing line. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, is saved. Whoever denies it is lost forever. We're all on trial before Jesus and our response to him. Now, there's a third trial that we see here besides Jesus and us. In verses 66 to 72, it's really Peter's trial. Jesus is on trial before the authorities. Peter is on trial before the common people, the servants, the soldiers, those who are in the lower court. So Peter's in the people's court. Jesus is up there in the high priest's court. But they're both being tested. They're both being tried. And we see in Jesus how you're supposed to do it. And we see in Peter how you're not supposed to do it. So Peter, ministering in Rome, telling the disciples there as they prepare for persecution and suffering, don't do it the way I did it. Don't fail the way that I failed. But be strong in the might of the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on Christ and make no provision for the flesh. And Peter will get another chance. He will acquit himself in the end and stand with Christ and suffer with Christ as he encourages and exhorts Christians to do in his letter of 1 Peter. But let's take a look at it, verses 66 to 72. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and he wept. In verse 70, when it says, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. They could tell that he was a Galilean because of the way that he spoke. The more that he denied that he was one of Jesus' followers, the more he revealed himself to be one of Jesus' followers, because the Galileans all had a certain accent. In fact, in some places, the snobbish southern Judeans wouldn't even allow a Galilean to publicly read scripture because they found their accent to be intolerable. And I'm sure Peter was trying to cover up his accent and not show it too much, but it showed through. And people could tell, no, you are from Galilee. We can tell from the way that you talk. And so he gets desperate. After denying Christ first and the second time, the third time, he takes an oath and he calls down curses on himself. He probably said something like, I swear by heaven that I don't know him and may I die if I'm lying. You know, sin starts small. You think, well, you know, I'll just tell this little lie to this servant girl. I don't know what you're talking about. But then you get pushed, you get pressed, and... You start digging your hole deeper. And sin will take you to a place you don't want to be. When Peter realized what he had become and what he had done, he broke down and he wept. Now praise God for that. 
Praise God for repentance. Because each one of us has come to that place. Each one of us gets to that point where we, we see where sin has taken us. We break down. Praise God for that. Praise God for second chances. That Peter was restored. That Peter got to be an apostle, a shepherd, a pastor. He didn't think he'd ever be that. When Jesus came, Peter thought, I'm not worthy. I can't be what I thought I was going to be. I'm not a leader in the church of Jesus Christ. I'm a failure. Well, the church is full of failures. Praise God for His grace. But let's not follow in the footsteps of Peter. Let's learn and let's grow strong in our faith. And let's be able to to stand where the Lord Jesus Christ wants us to stand to make the good confession. Whoever confesses me before men, I will confess him before the Father. Whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father in heaven. Now you might have denied Christ. You might have failed. There might be times where God told you to speak up and you didn't speak up. And maybe you even told a lie. That's not the end of the story. Your story ends when you die. And you're alive. And you're here. And you've got time to repent. You've got time to change. You've got time to grow. You've got time to stand with the Lord Jesus Christ. So don't let failure be the end of your story. But look at the Lord Jesus Christ and recognize that by His grace and by His power, you can do it. Apart from Him, you can do nothing. But with Him, you can do all things. The end of Christ's story is not here. When they receive Him with blows, when they mock Him, when they beat Him, and with the crucifixion that's coming up, it's all according to the plan. Mark 10.34, Jesus said earlier in the same gospel, they will mock him, they will spit on him, they will flog him, they will kill him. But that's not the end. Jesus said, after three days he will rise. And the resurrection changes everything. How can you stand? How can you be strong? If you believe in the resurrection. That's how you can do it. How can you go to jail and be separated from your family? How can you be put to death? executed for following Jesus Christ because you believe in the resurrection. Grow strong in faith. Easter Sunday comes after Good Friday, not just for Christ, but for all Christians. If we suffer with Him, we will also be glorified with Him. Let's pray. Lord, how little you've asked us to suffer for your name up until now. And yet, we still shy away from it. How cowardly we are. Lord God, take away our cowardice. Replace it with faith. Replace it with genuine love. Not a self-confidence, a self-professed love, but the kind of genuine faith that dies daily and that confesses you before men when so little is on the line. So that when everything's on the line, we are trained, we are prepared We are strong for whatever test you have before us. 
Test us in little ways now so we can see where we are, so we can see where we need to grow. And may this whole church be full of overcomers. Work in the heart of each one of us, Lord, so that we can be Christians indeed, praying like the Lord Jesus Christ and suffering like the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.